0: Welcome, it's KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Tonight we'll hear from Margaret Worsley, a principal clarinetist with the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra, in conversation with guest pianist David Kaplan, and a concert opportunity. Later in the program, we'll check out a cookbook, which could certainly serve all of us in ways that we're currently not exploring. It's called Cooking with Scraps. We're going to begin with a call for art in this area. Lily and Vasquez has more.
1: Our guest is Misty Burrell. She is the Interim Dean of Visual and Performing Arts at Chafee College. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. With the pandemic and so many art entities having had such a rough time, Some doors have closed. Some are trying to hang on. So I'm really glad Uh to speak with you today about what's happening at Wignall Museum, located Uh on the Chafee College campus. Tell me about this themed art exhibit that's planned for the museum.
2: Yeah, I'm really fortunate to have innovative thinkers and creatives working at Chafee. And Rebecca Trawick, who's the director of Chafee's Wignall Museum, developed a concept around the titled exhibition, Discomfort. And we're basically accepting submissions May 1st to the 16th. And essentially, the perspective that Rebecca Trawick took on this concept was that, you know, when you think about our current environment, working remotely taking classes remotely, primarily for the last year, at least since March 2020, that a lot of people are having to reflect on what it means to be working in this space and what it means to be creating within this space. And so, you know, really from her design standpoint, you know, she's thinking about comfort and discomfort, and we often think of it as polar opposites. However, both with the global pandemic and also a lot of our cultural and racial upheaval, essentially, Thinking about where artists, designers, and creatives live in this space is probably one of the most critical moments, right? Because we are telling the stories, our personal stories, the stories of our communities. And so essentially the project is creating that space. And so we're also very fortunate to have Nicole Green Hodges from Riverside City College, who will serve as our guest artist
1: uh, for the event. Let me ask a few more questions first about the theme itself. We know this exhibit will be virtual, but what's also different about this particular call for artwork is it's not just the students or the faculty on the campus of Chafee. It's the community. So tell me why Rebecca came up with the whole
2: community aspect. The fact of the matter is, is Chafee serves a very broad district. So we include seven cities, Chino, Chino Hills, Fontana, Montclair, Ontario, Rancho Cucamonga, and Upland. And that's about 850,000 people who reside in the district and makes up about 39% of San Bernardino County's population. And so being able to sort of expand access beyond the campus was a really critical move. And so at this time, you know, what we're finding is that access to education looks very different access to cultural events looks very different. And I will just say that this particular exhibition, along with a number of our other performances, they have also provided new ways of experiencing entertainment, but also experiencing the art making of local artists, but also those who've been invited to our community to share. And so I think the fact that we serve such a broad community this is a really exciting opportunity to go beyond, you know, students and also professional artists, but also to the people who make up our communities. And so Chasey is at the heart of Inland Empire's both professional and creative community, and the Visual Performing Arts has a long history of providing support and resources to students as they prepare for transfer, you know, and also for their careers, but While social and cultural engagement opportunities have shifted from live performances and exhibitions to the age of social distancing, our faculty and students have leaned into that experience Really embracing what it means to deliver virtual performances on demand through streaming services, virtual exhibitions, and online engagement opportunities through studio visits. And the Wignall has been really important in helping create those conditions. And so tapping into our communities beyond a student who's registered at the college specifically, this is an exciting moment to really get to know who the people are that make up our community.
1: And as you just described, Chafee has their own district area. You described some of the cities. Is this artwork coming just from those cities, or is it throughout the county, or how are you breaking really that down? really
2: throughout the county, yes, it's also including Riverside County. Cool. There's a lot of overlap between the individuals who make up shape these student body. We serve beyond those cities. Right. A lot of our students also come from the high desert. So sure. our community is our students and their families who make them as well. So, so that's what I'm really loving about
1: this one. It's not yeah. just that. It's really opening it up to the entire kind of Inland Empire region yes. rather than just specifically <laughs> the campus, which is really cool. I want to talk a little bit more about the theme. It's discomfort a virtual project dis is in parentheses and comfort is outside of the parentheses when I see some of these call for artworks and the creative person comes up with these names I'm always thinking what does that mean What does that mean Mm -hmm. to be comfort Mm -hmm. or discomfort? What does that piece of artwork look like? And I never know what that means. Is that going to be a depressed, sad person, you know, in a fetal position? Or is it Mm. a person sitting on a couch having a box of bonbons that's comfort? You know, I don't know what that looks like. Mm -hmm.
2: So Mm -hmm. what's your take on that? I mean, I think while the pandemic has really disrupted the lives of our communities, you know, and the comforts of home or what that even means, and even just thinking about access to resources, including income, the Wignall has really been instrumental in creating conditions for that kind of reflection, change, and fostering a kind of creative space for the broader community. And so when you think about the words discomfort, I certainly don't want to interpret how an artist might approach that. Right. But I think there is a kind of duality, right, to be both discomfort, (laughs) experience discomfort, and also comfort simultaneously. Right. And so, you know, it's interesting, and I thought I would just share this, that, you know, we had a guest speaker come to Chafee, who's a policy advocate and educator and a consultant. His name is Bryce Salado. And he talked about why stories matter. He said, quote, our stories can be doors for other people to walk through and windows for other people to see themselves in, end Hmm. quote. And I think what's really important about that statement and this moment is that artists and creatives are looking for places to connect with their communities. And when you think about music, those are typically venues where people come together. When you think about exhibitions, where you're coming to an institution, a cultural institution, you're in that space. And The fact of the matter is, is when you think about what Chafee is doing in this moment, is we're really creating and designing experiences for the future, and technology is forcing us to create and collaborate in innovative ways. And discomfort is really one way in which I think artists can explore both what does it mean, you know, to be in this moment, and you know we're not waiting for a return to what was, but instead you know, really harnessing and reimagining the arts and what it means to be an audience and what it means to have access, you know, to resources. And so the next generation of makers, problem solvers, designers and entertainers, they're shaping what it means to be a creative. And so I certainly don't want to define what discomfort means for any of these individuals. But I think that It's an invitation. Is it discomfort or
1: comfort, or is it both of them, the yin and the yang of them? I believe it's both. Okay, cool.
2: (laughs) I truly believe it's both.
1: Okay, very good. Now, let me reintroduce our guest is Misty Burrell. She is the Interim Dean of Visual and Performing Arts at Chafee College. How can artists submit their work, and what is the deadline to submit?
2: So some of those details are provided at the link for the Wignall Museum of Art, and basically it's a virtual project, and submissions are being accepted May 1st through the 16th. The exhibition will go live July 1, and it will continue through August 31st, and you can access the actual application through www.chafee.edu forward slash
1: So it's www.chafee.edu slash Correct. Perfect. Now, you did mention that it is being judged, and Nicole Green Hodges is the judge. Who is Nicole, and what will the top artists receive?
2: So based on this outline, Nicole Green Hodges is going to jury the exhibition. She's going to be the guest artist for the event and she's going to select five artist works that best interpret the theme Mm. and green hodges she's from rialto a native who also earned a master of fine arts at claremont graduate university and the top artists will receive a hundred dollar gift from the chapey college foundation at this time nice
1: i think i read that there were five top artists will they all receive a hundred dollars or will just the very top artists who she selects will receive that
2: I believe it's the top artist five will receive the $100 gift nice. from Chafee College Foundation. But I can also confirm that.
1: Do you know how many pieces one artist can submit?
2: They actually can submit digital images or files of their original paintings, drawings, graphic designs, sculptures, videos, other works that relate to their experiences with discomfort and comfort in the last year. So as a part of the submission guidelines, community members, artists, students are invited to submit via artcall.org and there's basically a limit of no more than one application per user with a maximum of five attachments. But because there's about approximately 250 works in total that will be accepted, based on the number of submissions, they may only be able to accept, you know, more than one image per artist.
1: And again, it was artcall, call, A-R-T-C-A-L-L.org. That's another place where they can get this information.
2: Correct. Artcall.org. Perfect.
1: Misty, thank you so much for your time and intention regarding this. I'm thank really you. excited about this community project and bringing people together and hopefully getting artists enthusiastic because I know some artists that their artwork changed during this last year or their style or whatever they're feeling. So I think this is a great way to get those thoughts out.
2: Definitely. Can I just say that while it has essentially disrupted the lives of our communities, again, we are not waiting to return to what was, but instead we really are going to harness this moment, reimagine the art and audience and access. I'm so proud of the work that we've accomplished during this time, so I hope that everyone takes this opportunity to participate. I do too. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: That was KVCR's Lillian Vasquez in conversation with Misty Burrell, Interim Dean of Visual and Performing Arts at Chafee College. Again, artcall.org for more information. You're listening to KVCR. Arts on 91.9 KVCR. Online and on mobile devices at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Later in the program, we'll hear about a cookbook recently out, all things relative. It's called Cooking with Scraps. First, though, the latest concert for the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra, which was held virtually May 1st. It'll be available again for a matinee, airing Sunday, May
3: 16th. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I am principal clarinetist of the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra, talking today here with David Kaplan, pianist, who will be soloing with our orchestra. The program includes Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 2 and Mozart's Piano Quintet K452. David, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome.
4: Thank you, Maggie, for having me. I'm looking forward to this project together.
3: Me too. Yeah, it's just going to be a wonderful program. I know you're originally from New York, but you're presently a Southern California local. That's awesome.
4: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the welcome. My wife and I are thrilled to move to Los Angeles just this September, in the middle of the pandemic.
3: Oh my goodness. So you've been hired recently on faculty at the Herb Albert School of Music at UCLA. How's that going so far? What are you most excited about other than their incredible music library?
4: You're right, the library is really amazing. I so far haven't found anything that they don't have. Well, it's particularly exciting for me to join the faculty at UCLA because it's my alma mater. I graduated there in the early 2000s, so it's really really nice to come sort of come back home and be a part of the faculty that helped get me started.
3: Oh, that's wonderful. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs>
4: Right, and the students have been just tremendous during such a difficult year, an odd year to start serving on a faculty for sure, or any job for that matter, I think. So I think everyone is really looking forward to when we can return to in-person classes safely and all that. So it's a lot of optimism.
3: Yeah, that's wonderful. So far, you've only been doing classes and lessons exclusively on, do you use Zoom?
4: Everything is Zoom. And so everyone's become an audio producer. Everyone's become a professional audio engineer to get the right kind of settings so that you can actually have a productive session with music and have good enough sound quality for that. And in particular, I think the directors of ensemble and chamber music instructors have had an immense challenge to try to make that time really fruitful for the students and to keep the focus on music.
3: Yeah, it's really tough. It's really tough for music educators and all educators right now for sure. Let's talk a little bit about music. I was looking at your amazing website and listening to all of the recordings that you've got on there. It's just beautiful. It's great. You clearly celebrate and love the seminal works of Beethoven, Mozart, Schubert, Brahms, et cetera. But you are also an ardent supporter of living composers. Your website celebrates Anthony Chung, Christopher Saron, John Adams. My question is, how does the preparation process vary from preparing older works versus preparing new works?
4: Gosh, that's a really good question. And you know, in a certain sense they're identical, the process is identical and in some senses, of course, it's just wildly different. With pieces that have been played hundreds of times or thousands of times already, then there is a tacit kind of osmosis that happens before you even touch the piece. So on one hand, there's a convenience of uh, familiarity, and on the other hand, then perhaps underlying assumptions that it's wise to shed, you know, and it can be difficult to find an individual voice in that context, mm-hmm. you know, to, to find what you're trying to say amid all the noise that's pre-existing. With a new piece, then you have the privilege of establishing, beginning to establish that tradition. And so you feel the responsibility of putting that noise in the air for the first time. And on the other hand, there's a freedom in that, you know?
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you typically know your artists pretty well when you perform their newer works, or do you sometimes just perform their works without knowing them personally?
4: definitely both and especially if the context is that i'm you know engaged to play a piece of new music that where i don't have an existing relationship with the composer but in terms of commissioning you know that usually is based on some existing connection and to be honest the way i really came to playing contemporary music was the social element the idea or the revelation you could say that there's colleagues that there's friends there's people who are contemporaries in life who are deeply engaged with writing music that's worthy of the same kind of attention and commitment that Beethoven and Schumann are, you know?
3: I love that. Do you compose any music yourself?
4: You know, I don't really compose, but I love improvising. And so I just, ever since I was a little kid, I would just play extemporaneously at the piano, but I'd be loath to write any of it down.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, improvising is such a wonderful skill to have. I have such respect for people who can do it. It's awesome. I love how versatile your collaborations are, just from orchestral solos to four-hand piano to eclectic ensembles like Third Coast Percussion and many, many others. I think you already answered this, but are these scenarios organically made or is this something you've always seen yourself doing as part of your career? I know you mentioned the social element of just working with your friends. Is that the main motivator there?
4: I would be lying if I didn't say I enjoyed working with my friends. It always... Adds a lot of fun to the artistic process to be doing it with people you like. So that's definitely a big motivator. To be honest, I see all music as collaboration, even if it's solo. You know, because there's so many elements that you're engaging with. And if you're engaging with a piece of music, then even there's a silent partner, which is your composer. So already, even playing by yourself, then I feel that there's a collaboration happening. And that extends outward and outward. Playing a concerto is as much chamber music or should be as much chamber music as playing, you know, a quote-unquote accompanying a violinist or a flutist or something, there's as much give and take, I think, in any musical situation if you have open ears. So the element of collaboration for me is really central, no matter what it is. And I think that you're right, that has really informed how I've tried to shape my career to the extent you can control these things.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. The silent partner is the composer. So even when you're practicing by yourself, you still have that buddy, that collaborator, as you say. That's really beautiful. beautiful way to think about it. Let's talk briefly about chamber music. I'm such a lover of this medium for classical music, as its original intention was more or less, like you said, to play for and with friends. For our audience out there, the word chamber, meaning room, is typically music meant to be performed in, say, a living room. So repertoire written is usually very intimate and typically very challenging since everyone's playing a different part. There's no doubling up the works you'll be playing with the symphony for this program, even the biggie of Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 2, is chamber music in its nature. Was that intentional for programming on your part? Did you grow up playing chamber music with your family?
4: I mean, I certainly grew up playing chamber music and coming from a musical family, then yes, chamber music was a part of the sort of the family, you know, the domestic life. So, I mean, I grew up taking that for granted for sure. This program was designed very, very, very intelligently, I think, our maestro, Parnther, and I think that he and I saw together a connection between two works written by very ambitious young men who were trying to make their mark in the big city, having moved from the provinces. You know, And I think that's something that so many people can relate to, the idea of trying to make it and make your mark on the big stage. And I think these pieces both have the self-consciousness on the part of their composers of trying to prove something. Um, Mozart, about his quintet, which we're going to play, wrote to his dad after he finished the piece and said, you know, Dad, this is the best thing I've ever written. You know, And I think you can hear, even if he ended up writing something which we might consider to be better later on, which I'm sure many people might say, you hear in the piece his ardent desire to write the best thing he ever wrote. Mm. And similarly, Beethoven Coming to wanting to really make a splash from the sticks and Bonn in the big town of Vienna. He was showing deference to the musical language that was in favor and trying to contextualize himself, but also putting some of that brashness in the mix and trying to, you know, really say, Hey, I'm here and I've got something to say.
3: That is really cool. I love that Beethoven and Mozart are both programmed on this concert. And they met briefly, didn't they?
4: There's no proof, but I think there's a wide agreement that they met in 1787 when Beethoven made his first trip to Vienna as really just a teenager, and supposedly he played for Mozart, and yeah I met him very briefly. But when he came back to Vienna to settle, then he was surprised to learn that Mozart had died. Mm. You no. Know? Haydn was actually Beethoven's principal mentor, you know, and the most sort of audible influence in, in a lot of the early music.
3: Yeah, I can't imagine what Beethoven's music would have sounded like had he studied with Mozart. I mean, I wonder what that difference would have been.
4: Yeah, we can only but wonder, right? But Beethoven clearly had just so much veneration for Mozart's writing. Apparently, not so much veneration for his piano playing. Um, he apparently told, <laughs> Someone that, that Mozart's playing was choppy. <gasps> um, Gasp. <laughs> so who knows? He probably only heard him for 20 minutes or so outdoors or something. So you know. <laughs> yeah. who's to judge? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, Beethoven clearly, you know, both of them were just so important in developing an aesthetic or style of piano playing. I mean, piano playing didn't really exist until them and their predecessors. So you know, the piano was like a new thing, a new device.
3: Right, that's really cool. New technology. Exactly. (laughs) My name is Margaret Worsley, and I am Principal Clarinetist of the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra. Let me reintroduce my guest, David Kaplan, pianist, who is performing with the San Bernardino Symphony in our upcoming concert. So how do you know our beloved maestro, Anthony Parnther?
4: Well, we had the privilege of playing together, actually, the very work that we're going to play, the Mozart Quintet. Mm -hmm. And I should say, I had the privilege of playing with him because it was just such an extraordinary pleasure to play with him as a bassoonist. Mm -hmm. And we played this Mozart for a series in Santa Monica called Jacaranda. Mm -hmm. And I think we got along musically and personally. And so Maestro Parnther was very kind to suggest that we work together with the San Bernardino Symphony.
3: That's so great. Well, if anyone can make it happen, it's Maestro Parnther. He's just amazing.
4: I'm blown away by his artistry, I have to say.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, he's phenomenal. We're so lucky to have him in our community and leading the charge with our orchestra. So back to you, I am in absolute awe of pianists and how they perform on a different instrument almost constantly. (laughs) And I make a point of telling this to my clarinet students when they're having a bad reed day. (laughs) Are there rituals for you when getting used to an instrument? Like how long does it take until you feel comfortable for a performance on a foreign piano?
4: That's a really good question. I mean, I, honestly, familiarizing oneself with different instruments is just part of the job, just like, you know, I guess, you know, making reeds is for wind players. So, you know, it is just a kind of a reality that, and I think it was, you know, there's this really amazing Russian pianist named Sviatoslav Richter, Someone asked him about the challenge of touring the former Soviet Union you know, on a train and playing a concert every day, more or less, in a different city in a different you know, instrument, and chances are they weren't necessarily very good. And he said, well, you know, I played the best concerts on the worst pianos and the worst concerts on the best pianos. <laughs> and I think that's something to remember when confronted with a less than perfect instrument. All these things are relative, you know, and it's got to be about the moment and making the most music and being the most communicative you can on whatever box is in front of you. So I personally find a lot of enjoyment in the differences that pianos have and sort of exploiting them or fighting them, whatever the case may be. And I know that there are a number of maybe more distinguished colleagues I have who are a good bit pickier about instruments, but that's, I guess, the privilege of their station.
3: Sure. No, that's interesting (laughs) that you don't obsess over, you know, the action and you're just trying to pull from the piano what you can. That seems like a good lesson to take in any relationship.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, of course, one does appreciate when the piano is really extraordinary. and, And I'm very lucky to have a relationship with Yamaha. And so as part of that, then it's really a privilege to be playing an amazing brand new Yamaha piano for this Performance that I think really is just lovely for this piece. It's got a very clean, articulate sound and beautiful resonance, and it's in a way a canvas that you can kind of paint the way you want on it. So I think the audience will be pleased to hear it.
3: I think so too, in just listening to your respective recordings. You really do paint. It's a phenomenal concept of color when I listen to you.
4: That's very kind. Thank you. Well, there's (laughs) no
3: doubt of where the melody is. No matter where it is in the range of the piano, you can just. Pull it out, it's phenomenal. It's really, really fun to listen to you. But I wanna go on here. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the pandemic and how everyone's doing. There's a beautiful poem that's gone viral about the pandemic by Kitty O'Meara. And I won't read the whole thing, but it opens with, and the people stayed home and they read books and listened and rested and exercised and made art and played games and learned new ways of being and we still. And they listened more deeply. Have you, Mr. Kaplan, felt a sort of cleansing or rejuvenation during this weird time of global upset? And what are some of your coping mechanisms that have carried you through a time of no live concerts?
4: Gosh, that's such a profound and beautiful and eloquent verse that you read. Thank you for sharing it. I have to say, it's. I think that for so many musicians and performers, artists of all kinds. I mean, this has been as much a difficult moment for so many different groups of people, whether it's teachers or young parents, medical workers, frontline workers, essential workers of all kinds. I don't know. This has just been a, it should be anyway, a a very unifying struggle and a moment that we're all going to look back on, hopefully with a sense of solidarity. But the poem is right. There is a flip side. So I've definitely benefited from that. It's funny, my wife and I just did our taxes, and so we saw, you know, like how much running around we were doing. She's also a professional musician, and we saw, you know, how much running around we were doing until March 13th, 2020, and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, and realizing how insane that kind of schedule was to maintain for us personally, right? So in the ensuing months, well, there was that time to be still, and for all the financial pressure that brought, then there was the benefit of listening more closely and more deeply. So I definitely relate to that. And then at the same time, look forward to having the opportunity to adjust and to try to achieve more balance, to keep listening more deeply and to keep still, while, of course, embracing whatever opportunity may come or resume in the future, which we're all looking forward to.
3: Yes, we are. Has your practice routine changed during this time?
4: Absolutely. I realized that I had become practicing on a need basis, you know, and you practiced for the things that you had to do as opposed to practicing for the sake of betterment, you know, in the way that a student practices, right? So I'd lost the touch to some extent with the practicing for one's own self, so practicing for its own sake, just as a function of time constraint, you know? So it was a startling change to go back to the mentality of, well, I don't have to practice anything right now because I don't have a a gig for the foreseeable future. So what do I want to work on and what would be productive? That's been a profound shift for me.
3: That's wonderful. Just going back to basics, why we like it. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. You'll be performing with us, the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra, which would normally have been performed at the California Theater in downtown San Bernardino. We can't play there due to the pandemic. However, it's neat because... Where this concert will be partially filmed is on campus here at San Bernardino Valley College in our gorgeous auditorium. And both venues, both the California Theater and our SBVC auditorium, were designed by the same architect, John Paxson Perrin, who also designed the Lincoln Theater in Los Angeles, which is sometimes referred to as the West Coast Apollo. David, have you seen the space yet?
4: No, I haven't. I've seen pictures of it but I have not seen the actual space in person. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I've heard there's a beautiful organ there as well.
3: Yeah, the California Theater, yeah. And then the auditorium on our campus is just gorgeous. It's got the Spanish-style vibe to it. And I think you should Facebook Live your reaction to walking into the space because it's just so stunning. But my question to you is, do you have a favorite venue? I know you've played all across the world but do you have a favorite venue that has just stayed with you as far as beauty and acoustics?
4: Gosh, I'd have to really think about it. I mean, I definitely have found some incredibly satisfying performance sort of experiences in a range of different places, and it's not always the most grand place that gives that. Sometimes it's the intimacy of a small room where it's been being at a public school at 6 a.m. and playing for some second graders that <laughs> creates the magic. It's been a range. But I can say that that one particularly fulfilling memory was getting to play in the Philharmonie of Berlin, which was designed after the Second World War in a pretty radical style of architecture and with a real sense of civic optimism, you could say. And it's incredibly egalitarian on the inside, more or less. You know, it's not dissimilar from Disney Hall in the way that the seats are configured. So the audience is more or less in the round. And it does feel when you're an audience member in that hall that You're more or less equally close to the stage wherever you are. And when you're playing, as I had the opportunity once to do in that hall, it feels as if you're in the world's biggest living room, Mm. which is an incredible feeling. And the mix of clarity and warmth that that hall has, I'm not sure if I've experienced that particular acoustic or feeling anywhere else.
3: Wow, that's really cool. And it sounds almost like, again, an homage to chamber music,
4: (laughs) Totally, totally. It really lent a feeling of chamber music to, you know, a very public and extroverted art form, which is the concerto.
3: That's beautiful. All right, I've got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So if you want to just fire these off in a word or two, however long or short you want to make this, but here we go. First is, who inspires you, pianists or non?
4: Oh, man. (laughs) If I can just limit it to piano playing, then one of my former teachers, Claude Frank, who left us in 2014, always remains an inspiration in my mind for his mix of expression and humility.
3: All right. Who do you listen to when you're driving?
4: <laughs> Funny you should ask, no one right now, because I have a kind of an old car and the radio broke. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes, I got to get that fixed. It's an expensive part.
3: (laughs) Oh, no. Well, you have to get it fixed to listen to this bit on KVCR.
4: I certainly will.
3: (laughs) All right. For our friends who don't necessarily listen to a lot of classical music, who would be a good composer you'd recommend to get into at first?
4: Gosh, I just love all music so much. It's hard to choose a favorite right now. I mean, Beethoven is a great place to start always. I think his music remains relatable to so many people for so many different reasons. And if you want to define concert music or art music or whatever, then he's sort of, you know, like the Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. if you will. I love Shakespeare because I think each play is about one thing, but somehow touches on everything. And that's how I feel with Beethoven's music. So each piece is so unified and is about one thing, but it also somehow says everything also. So I guess starting with Beethoven is great, but for me, honestly, it's more about how music is framed that makes it approachable and less about what the actual music is. So it's about whether the artists have found a way to present it in a way that facilitates deep listening and like emotional engagement.
3: That's great. I hear some flute in the background. Is that someone (laughs) taking lessons? (laughs) That is
4: someone, yeah. Sorry about that. I hope it's not too... um, No, it's great. home, Home office, you know. Yeah,
3: yeah, of course. You've got your soundtrack to your life. That's great. All right. Next question, rapid fire. What's your favorite thing to cook?
4: Well, 10 years ago or so, I started making handmade pasta. And so my wife calls me the pasta man because I just am obsessed with always improving the dough and, you know, and trying different shapes and matching particular doughs with particular sauces. So that's sort of my obsession.
3: Oh, how fun. That's great. And then finally, do you have a favorite rock band or hip hop group?
4: You know, I really love Public Enemy from the early 80s, you know, yes. uh, and a range of things since. But I guess I'm really attracted to the spirit of hip hop is connected to activism and just the intrinsic relationship there is just so compelling and powerful to me. And, and I guess for rock, I mean, I guess when I was growing up and a lot of classic rock was floating around in my car, and so i feel like a child of the 60s and like the Beatles and the Stones and all that. So
3: <laughs> Your versatility precedes you. That's so wonderful. David, thank you so much for joining us. David Kaplan is a pianist who will be joining the San Bernardino Symphony for their upcoming concert on Sunday, May 16th at 3 p.m., Audience members can access the performance through the San Bernardino Symphony website, www.sanbernardinosymphony.org. David, thank you so much. It was such a treat and a pleasure to talk to you today.
4: Maggie, thank you, and I'm looking forward to working together.
3: Me too. I've been practicing.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, I hope you have a great read and hope I have a good piano.
3: Yes, let's hope for the best. We'll cross our fingers. All right. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you.
0: That was Margaret Worsley, Principal Clarinetist with the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra, in conversation with guest pianist David Kaplan for the concert, which will be streamed May 16th, with more at sanbernardinosymphony.org. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, streaming at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One, and most past shows are at kvcrnews.org. arts. Let's go now to Emmanuel Rogers with a cookbook once again, one that helps
5: us use what we thought was scrap or even what we thought had gone bad. Joining us now is author Lindsay Jean Hard. Lindsay is here to talk about cooking with scraps turn your peels, cores, rinds, and stems into delicious meals. Thank you for joining us today, Lindsay.
6: Thank you for having me.
5: Oh, you are welcome. I am an old hand at talking with people that like to cook good food so you are most welcome here. Okay. Now there's a lot of wasted food in our country. Why is this occurring?
6: I think there's a lot of different factors that contribute to that because we've reached this really staggering point of, you know, 40% of food here in the US is going uneaten. So I think we need to shift our mindset and realizing what a valuable resource that is. It's better for the planet and it's better for our pocketbook to be using these things.
5: So now in your book, Cooking with Scraps, you take things that we neglect, forget, or just plain get tired of and make good-tasting meals from these scraps. What is the benefit of cooking with scraps in our home and for our country?
6: Yeah, well, it's really good for the planet to not be wasting this food and filling landfills unnecessarily. But, you know, it's also good for our pocketbook. It's saving us money because you're using (laughs) all of the food that you already paid for and brought home instead of throwing it away.
5: That's a big appeal right there, just saving a few dollars there. What are things considered scraps?
6: I'm mostly talking about underutilized produce parts peels and stems and cores, but then there are also a few other odds and ends in the book too, like cheese rinds and coffee grounds. We're throwing away the equivalent of $165 billion every year. So it's just a huge amount of waste. This is happening at home and restaurants and producers. Like this isn't just in our home kitchens. but cooking with scraps is really stuff that individuals can make to start to make a dent in those numbers.
5: Okay, now we're gonna get back to the book and some of these recipes in just a moment. But Lindsay, will you take just a moment to cheer with our audience, where they can find out more about your book and your column, Food 52?
6: You can find the book at your local bookstore or online sellers. And then you can find me at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Lindsay Jean Hard. And then I'm no longer at Food 52, but I still have a bunch of recipes there that you can find.
5: Here's some of the, uh, well, food for thought here. You take banana peels and other things and make them useful and good. How did these recipes come about, and who were your test subjects?
6: Well, it came about during my six years that I spent at food52.com. I had a column called Cooking with Scraps, and I was sharing recipes from the Food 52 community members that were making really smart use of all of these underutilized parts. And I just learned so much from the community at that time that I wanted to share that knowledge with everyone else. So that's where this cookbook was born. And then as far as test subjects, my family got to try a lot of these and friends and neighbors. But then I also had a really great group of recipe testers that volunteered to try all of these things and make sure they were as good as they could be before they made it into the book
5: now, I'm always curious about the family and friends thing. How did they like being part of this?
6: I think the friends liked it more than the family did because the friends would only get the really good ones, whereas the family would get, (laughs) you know, I'd do the same recipe over and over and over again to try and make it right. So they might have gotten a little bit more tired of the repeats.
5: So they were glad when you completed your book?
6: I think so, yes.
5: (laughs) Tell them we're all lifting them up as heroes because they did something for the rest of us, and we can just enjoy it. I will. (laughs) Now, let's move on to what are some of your favorite recipes in cooking with scraps?
6: Well, that banana peel cake that you mentioned is definitely one of my favorites because it's just a delicious cake as it is, and you would never know that there's banana peels in it. I also am really fond of the kale stem hummus because that's one where the kale stems just blend completely into the hummus. And again, you'd never guess that there are kale stems in it, but it's just adding some fiber and preventing them from being tossed.
5: Wow. Now, the banana peel cake, and I I go back to this because that one caught my eye right away. What does the banana peel do for a cake?
6: (laughs) Well, it's not all that different from cooking with something like applesauce, so you're cooking the bananas and getting them a little bit softened, and then you're blending them into this fruit puree, and then making a cake with it, and so it just adds a lot of moisture, and it gives the cake a really great, light, bouncy texture. Oh,
5: this sounds really good to me. You also have a pineapple peel and core lemonade with mint. Uh, what is that about?
6: Yeah, well, when you're peeling a pineapple, so much of the fruit comes off with that coarse peel, but... The flavor is obviously still there. So this is one that you're probably going to want to choose organic pineapple since pineapples are grown with a lot of pesticides and you're cooking the peel. But I'm turning the peel and the core into this pineapple-flavored sugar syrup that I'm then adding to lemonade. But you could use in other beverages or you could maybe drizzle over cakes to add some moisture and flavor.
5: Okay. Now you may notice something that I've picked out some of the things that are sweet so far. I love food. But I always deviate just going straight to the banana peel type things. I'm going to try to move on because you have some recipes in your book that have to do with that dreaded CRISPR in our refrigerator. What can you do with those things out of the CRISPR that have been there for a while?
6: So these are the recipes that are sort of scattered through the books. They're not necessarily scraps per se, but there's the items that just get neglected in the back of your drawer. Like you have a couple stalks of celery left or one carrot, and it's a little bit harder to figure out how you're going to make a meal around them. So these are things like making quick pickles or using those vegetable odds and ends and maybe leftover meats and cheese to add into strata. So you're combining that with stale bread and then an egg and milk custard and turning it into like a savory bread pudding dish.
5: Oh, wow. Now, since you brought up stale bread, how many recipes do you have in here that you can actually use stale bread for, and what are just a few of your favorites?
6: I think I have four-ish recipes that use it, but stale bread is really one of the most versatile scraps. I use it to make breadcrumbs and croutons, and both of those are great to freeze and save to use later because those breadcrumbs can add texture to other dishes, like to top pasta or fried eggs. It can also be used to make other dishes, like I mentioned the strata, or you could use it to make a sweet bread pudding too.
5: Okay, I'd like to cheat for my audience just for a moment here. Will you explain a little bit how they would actually make this meal with the stale bread and eggs?
6: Yeah, so the strata, You're going to start with your stale bread and cube it or rip it up into pieces. And then depending on what you're going to add into it, if you're going to add, um, you might have vegetables that are already roasted and maybe like leftover turkey. You just want to have those other ingredients cooked first. So if they're not, then you're going to cook your vegetables. Okay. And then you're going to fill a baking dish with the bread, your other ingredients, And then you're going to pour over this mixture of eggs and milk with a little bit of salt and pepper and let it sit for a while so the bread can soak up that egg and milk mixture and then just bake it. And it's a really easy make-ahead dish that's great for entertaining and for guests.
5: Oh, wow. Is that something like a quiche?
6: Yeah, it's really similar to a quiche. It just has that added bread in there.
5: Okay, well, here's something that goes really well with bread, and that is the cheese rinds from the fridge what are cheese rinds and what can be done with them
6: so cheese rinds are the ends of the cheese so the harder ends like if you have parmesan and you're grating it and then you get to that tougher end we're not talking about eating wax so sometimes cheese will come with (laughs) wax on it and it's not that (laughs) it's just the harder parts of it and those have a lot of flavor to add to different dishes so you can save them in the freezer and I will add a Parmesan rind into a batch of soup or beans. But then you can also turn them into fromage Forch. so a cheese spread all on their own, or you can shape it into a cheese ball. Again, another great option for entertaining.
5: Now, if we all started doing this, how would it affect the industry of food?
6: Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in the collective. So if we're all individually doing this on our own, You know, it's not that much in our own personal kitchen, but collectively, I think that this can help to have a big impact. And it's just one step that it helps us, you know, shifting our mindset of how valuable food is and the valuable resource, not something that we should be wasting and filling our landfills with.
5: You know, mentioning that, let's go back to cheese for just a moment because – We all buy cheese, and at my house, it so often goes unused after I've made that primary meal. What other things can cheese be used for besides the thing we talked about? And why do we let it go unused so much?
6: Yeah, I don't know. That is one of those things that just seems to linger once you've used part of the block. But it's really great that cheese can be tossed in the freezer. So this isn't something that you'd want to put in the freezer and then maybe slice for later, but it still can be... Added to the freezer, and then you can use it for other dishes where it's going to be melted and the initial texture doesn't matter as much.
5: Now, Lindsay, any recipes in the book that you would really like to highlight for our audience?
6: Mm, I think the flavored salts and sugars are really fun ones to do in the clean out the crisper section. So, like using tomato skins and turning that into salt. It's really pretty, and it's also really flavorful, and it just adds a fun touch for garnishes for dishes or, like, for rimming beverages like Bloody Mary.
5: Oh, wow, that does sound good. Okay. Now, besides food that we've neglected for a little while, are there things that you have found that really should be just thrown out?
6: Well, obviously, if something is molding or rotting, you know, that's past the point of getting to use it. And we should be tossing it or composting it and not consuming it.
5: Okay. Now, what are the things that you have found to be the easiest to work with as far as leftovers go?
6: Well, I think the stale bread, like we talked about, is a really easy one for people to get started with if they're not already cooking with scraps. And then I think greens, like the beet greens and the carrot tops, are another easy one to start with.
5: I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Lindsay. And thanks for taking these recipes and sharing with us that would normally have been scrapped, but now that have been made delicious meals. Thank you again.
0: That was Emmanuel Rogers in conversation with Lindsay Jean Hard, author of Cooking with Scraps. Find it in bookstores and online retailers. Also, you can find more on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all under Lindsey Jean Hard. And that wraps up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Lindsay Jean Hard and Emmanuel Rogers. Also, Margaret Worsley, David Kaplan, and Misty Burrell. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Sharina Wad. Music bets, and themes heard on KVCR is composed and performed by Sean Longstreet. So thanks to Sean as well. And David Fleming, thanks especially to you for listening and for your support.